Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Authentic You Media, featuring radio, TV, webinars, and live events worldwide. And today, presenting the debut show of Interviews with Authentic You, with your co-host, Michelle Abo, author, international speaker, also known as the Celebrity Numerologist, and Jeffrey Miller, author, international speaker, and also known as The Interventionist. And now, here's Michelle and Jeff. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon to the entire planet. Welcome to Interviews with Authentic You. I'm Jeffrey Miller, also known as The Interventionist. My co-host is Michelle Arbo, the celebrity numerologist. And Michelle is not on air with us at the moment. She had a family situation come up, so she may drop in with us at any moment. And I'll be checking the uh, switchboard here to see when she does. Hopefully she gets a chance to. Today is a very special show. Not only is it the second major show of Interviews with Authentic You, with Authentic You Media, we have a very special guest, and I'm very honored to have this guest with us today. Her name is Lisa Lockwood, and she is known as the reinvention expert. She's the author of Undercover Angel, From Beauty Queen to Swap Team, and her newest book coming out is Reinventing You. She is also a highly sought-after speaker and consultant. She is an authority on reinvention, and she teaches people quickly and easily how to make successful career transformations to fulfill their personal dreams and develop their potential. Millions of people have seen Lisa on ABC, NBC, Fox News, CNN, CNBC. Lisa's expertise has also been featured on The Donnie Dirt Show, Nancy Grace, Steve Harvey. She's been profiled in Forbes.com, More.com, Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Tribune, Red Eye, Chicago, Today Chicago Women's Magazine, and more. And now today, debuting on Authentic You Media with us. Lisa Lockwood, welcome to the show. This is an honor. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. And Michelle, too, if you pop in later, um, I, I really appreciate it. Anytime I get an opportunity to learn more about you and your mission and, um, you know, how you help people with um, authenticity and getting a message out there is, is a great opportunity for everyone. So thank you. Well, thank you, and gratitude for that, for that, for those thoughts as well. We we are all about that. We do choose to lead in authenticity, and I think that boils down to a little key phrase that we use called "be you, your authentic self," and that's rather important wow. these days. I think people need to get that. That you know, don't try to be somebody you're not. Just be you, and and do the best you can. And really, that's what you've done. You know, I I've gone. I mean, I've I've known. Geez, Lisa, we've been in touch now for some time. Uh, not met personally. That will happen sooner or later here. I'll be in Chicago or somewhere on the road. And I look forward to that. But your story is, thank you, your story is amazing. Um, and not unlike a lot of people in this country, in this on this planet, the difference is you really did something about it. You made a change. And I think that's probably the best place to start. I mean, that's really what folks love to hear is how a person that has reached a level of doing it and getting it done and not taking no for an answer started out just like they are, you know? Would you tell us? Yeah, and it's so true. And I think that was the impetus for for my new book, Reinventing You, coming out, 10 Best Ways to Launch Your Dream Career, because... Um, I had gotten into different fields or different careers or different jobs, I should say, and a lot of them were done based on the effect of my environment. You know, so I see a lot of people reinvent for two reasons, either out of cause or effect. So they do it because they feel that they have to or they do it because they want to, going after a goal. They truly want that. It's in alignment with who they are authentically, to use your word. So... One of the things that I want to ease people with is, is letting them know that even though they spent a certain amount of time either in an industry, in corporate America, pursuing numerous degrees, masters, doctorates, et cetera, a lot of times after doing those things, they realize it's not exactly what they want to do with their life. It's not their mission. It's not their vision, their purpose. And 
they get caught up in, now what? Oh, I invested all of this money and all of this training and education, and I'm not going to even apply it into doing what I really love. What I'm here to tell you is that it's absolutely okay. Not only is it okay, it's a, it's a must in your life. You must be doing what you want to do. You must be doing the thing that you love. And there are ways to monetize it, and that's where people get a little bit nervous. How do I monetize it? How do I monetize or how do I make the equivalent of what I have been making in corporate America, in the job, in the nine-to-five, while I'm trying to figure out um, what it is that I want to do? And that's why I help people with that. So why am I the expert? Just by having a lot of personal experiences, changing, evolving, reinventing myself, and doing so in a way that I, I was successful in those reinventions. At the time, it was something that um, not necessarily things that I wanted to do, but I felt that I had to just because of my past. So I'll get into sharing that a little bit. Thank you, by the way, for, for, for your introduction and my bio. And the last thing that I want to do is, is scare people. You know, when people hear that, oh, she was a beauty queen. But guess what? I was a reluctant beauty queen. I went into a pageant because my mother answered me without telling me. I grew up on welfare seven children, south side of Chicago. My parents were not educated. High school dropouts themselves had only gotten through their first year of high school. My mother was a teenage mother, and subsequently I had siblings who became teenage mothers. I was on welfare until I was 18 years old. So, so trust me, you know, I can relate to a lot of people out there who didn't have an easy background. I also had a father who believed in discipline in the form of beating his kids regularly, with belts, with wooden sticks, with boards, with electrical cords. So, you know, I had endured quite a a few things in in that arena as well, but still had something within me that said, I knew better, I wanted better. And for me, education was the key to that. You know, I would look at my few of my siblings where, well, out of seven children, only two graduated high school, my oldest and myself. So at least I knew at the minimum education was going to be important. Did I absolutely know what I wanted to pursue, who I wanted to be? No, not at 18 I didn't. But what I did know is when I did graduate high school, after putting myself through my last year working a full-time job in a mini-mart, um, I would figure out a way to get to college. My parents weren't in a position to pay for it, and uh, that's why my mother entered me in the beauty pageant with hopes of me getting a scholarship. Amazing. And, you know, and, and does this relate, folks? I mean, how many people do you know or have you lived this in your own life to some degree that we we grow up this way? Some people have got it so tough, they don't ever think they're ever going to see the top to be able to get out of it. Lisa, you did something about that, though. You had this drive and this ambition, and, you know, you kind of went through everything there is to go through as a kid that could kind of go wrong to make you go the other direction, but it became a choice field. It became a choice of what not to do and what you weren't going to tolerate, you know, working to put yourself through high school, let alone trying to get into, you know, trying to put yourself through college, you know, just to get right. through high school. Absolutely fantastic. And then from there, you, if I remember correctly, you wanted to head for Hollywood, right? You wanted to get into the movies and do soaps or something, correct? Sure. Remember, think back when you were in high school and they write the little blurb under your picture, you know, most likely to become or et cetera. And mine yeah. was, you know, model and actress. That was my aspiration. I wanted to maybe work in soap operas or something like that. So, you know, leaving high school, that was the thought. But it was a grandiose vision. I didn't have finances, and I honestly wasn't mature enough to say, I'm going to pack my bags and move to L.A. when I'm 18 years old. So um, I did what I knew best. I continued working as a waitress until I found out that I was accepted to compete in the Miss Illinois USA pageant. Now imagine, even imagine that. You know, anybody listening right now, imagine going to compete in a beauty pageant with no experience. I know a lot of people are probably mocking it or laughing, like, what's the big deal, Lisa? Well... Growing up on, on welfare, like I said, until I was 18, and still working um, full-time through high school, I didn't have interviewing skills. I, I wasn't uh, cultured. I didn't have proper table etiquette and manners, none of, none of those things. Um, walking a runway, forget it. Where would I have learned how to walk a runway, how to interview in front of a panel of professionals? I wasn't equipped like the other girls had been. I wasn't, you know, the people I competed against were wealthy, affluent, and had been in many pageants prior to that. They've been in teen division, adolescent division, et cetera. And literally, I was, I was, I was a fish out of water. So I'm going to tell you, tell you something that's a little bit um, 
uh, in contrast to what you said about your authentic you, because it's actually a tip that I use with people, and it's a tip that I used in Miss Illinois USA pageant. I use the acting as if principle. Was I being my authentic self? No, because I was acting, and I encourage people to do that. When you don't have a specific skill or you're fearful about something, get into a phase where you can act or you can pull the strength from somebody who already has that skill. So what I did is I modeled, in a sense, my roommate, who was a former Miss Teen Illinois, pretended as if I had been in pageants before in order to build my esteem. She took me under her belt and kind of showed me how to walk a runway down one of the hallways in the hotel at the venue we were at um, for the pageant weekend. And I just pretended. I watched what she did in the interview. You know, she was two chairs down from me because we were alphabetical. And I saw what she did. I mimicked what she did. You know, tried to overhear her responses and um, did the best that I could. So I didn't take the title, but I placed 25th out of 205 girls with no pageant experience. So it was a huge lesson for me. That's excellent, actually, when you think about it. You know, I, I, I would love to talk about that for a minute, about the, you know, that we, we have a term that we use in, in coaching, you know, fake it till you make it. And yeah. Same don't thing like as that. They don't mm-hmm. think it's authentic, but in, but in a sense it still is. And I, I'm going to, as a strategic interventionist, and I know you practice NLP and hypnotherapy, as do I. We both do. And, right. you know, into the into the root root cause of problem of problems, uh, and I'm using the word problems at this point. We don't typically like to use that word. We call them issues That's and right. life experiences. Uh, but for the sake of getting it right out there, I'll say problems for that for that moment. But here's the okay. thing: authentically, you are still yourself, and the and the reason is is because you believe, and this is this is where it's so important for people have that faith as small as that mustard seed, as they say, in that good book, have that faith that you can do it and get out there and put yourself to it, and you will achieve it. It's to conceive, believe, you know, that, that, that old expression. That achieve, that's right. Right, conceive, believe, achieve. Absolutely. You're so, still being authentic because this is who you are. You know, you, 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 some people just would have said, no, I can't. And they just go to a belief structure that they cannot, that they just don't have it within to, to bring up and muster that strength to say, damn it, I'm going to do this because I'm going to get out of this situation because I'm going to change. I'm going to be the person that I choose to be. That is authenticity. Right. And, right. and, and it's, a, it's, an, it's, an ex, it's an expansion of, of who you are. So you're, you're, it's already there. You're just expanding that part of you. Um, you know, same thing with esteem. Could I have had self-esteem issues going in? Yes, you know, thinking back, yep. it's, it's a while ago, 18 years old and walking in and seeing the girls who were wealthy and their, their etiquette and, you know, everything from their Louis Vuitton luggage, you know, things that I wasn't really exposed to, um, to that wealth and affluence, could have absolutely been um, um, bothered by that, you know, and felt threatened by that and had a lower self-esteem. But when I went in, it was always, I will hold my head high, and based on, you know, where I came from, the fact that I was there to me meant something. So I was there, I was chosen, and I used that to kind of hang my hat on to give me that modicum of of esteem uh, to get me through, and then use the fake it till you make it or act as if strategy um, in the entire process. And it did. In the the end, you know, I I don't even know if I had placed 205 out of 205, I, I still think that I would have walked away with the fact that it took a lot of a lot of courage for a high school grad just getting off welfare at 18, working as a waitress, and just being able to compete, compete in that pageant, um, I think would have been just amazing. The fact that I just decided I will do it, you know, without having the credentials. So um, in, the, in the long run, I think that that built my, my self-esteem even more um, for the next phase of my life, which was the decision to join the United States Air Force. Right. Now, that that kind of led you up to that. And I I guess there's a term that I used to hear as a kid. They said, that person's got gumption. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know if something's from down south or where it is, but it's an excellent fact. Yes. The person's got their stuff. Get the stuff in the right bag, you know. (laughs) And and really, when you come right down to it, that, yeah, I agree with you. You know, listening to that now about the, the beauty pageant, and again, as you said, if you'd been 250, 
would, would have changed anything? Probably not, just because you placed, you did it, you made the motions, you overcame the objections, you put yourself into it despite the fact that you had had this peer pressure situation your entire life, pretty much. That's right. You know, That's right. You know, you're from the wrong side of the track, so to speak, you know, because your, your family is... Sure. Seven. Yeah, and... and Many, many, many people in America and the world today are in that situation as we speak. They are in exactly that situation. And many, yes, they are. They don't get out of it because they don't think they can. As a matter of fact, you, prove, you have proven. And, you know, some people say, well, she's one in a million. Well, yes, probably she's the only one because she's authentically herself. She's, Lisa is the most unique person in the world because there's not a carbon copy of her, period. So... <laughs> Not that. for any of us. Yes, you're exactly right. And I like that. Uh, the gumption, you know, the gumption, the wherewithal, the, the who who does she think she is by, you know, taking that step. And it it wasn't uh it wasn't easy, but I think I was just so tied to education, so tied to um that's the only thing that's gonna break the cycle of, of what I had lived through, you know, with with welfare continuing, teenage pregnancies, um, with my sisters that it was my way out and I really I really just believe that um, if I give myself a college education, something, I can make something of myself. So I figured joining the military, knowing that they had the Veterans Grant GI Bill, um, I would serve my four years and go ahead and go to school. Um, but, you know, I realized there were so many other beautiful benefits along the way with that. So here yeah, I was, yeah. you know, go ahead. What people don't recognize, and, you know, because I, 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 I grew up in an era where there was a draft, you know, and, uh, yes. and it was it was called Vietnam, not Gulf War. Um, but right. but never, never lost. War is war, and going away is going away. It's not the same um, as as traditional, you know. But even today, our military, even all our voluntary forces are, are in harm's way. And God bless them all, and they're from every country for whatever reason that we have to be where we have to be. The difference is you saw that as that opportunity for that education that you couldn't swing financially. Otherwise, you might have gone the college route. But you also, if I remember correctly, didn't you get married right about that same period of time? Well, I got engaged. So I was engaged young. So, again, I mentioned I had seven kids in my family, six of which are girls, you know, one brother. And um, I think because of my immaturity, because of looking for that uh, male attention and father figure, I mean, literally, right. I was engaged after the beauty pageant, before I went into the military, I met a man about seven years older than me who um, kind of swept me off my feet, and he tried to discourage me from joining the military at that time. And I'm, I'm very thankful that I had the strength to say no. You know, financially he was set, and he just felt that, you know, I didn't need to work, and he really wanted the, the stay-at-home wife and have kids and that sort of thing. And I knew for myself, I said, education is important. I was nowhere near wanting children um, at that time after helping raise, you know, my sister's children at a young, very young age. So for me, it wasn't even a thought that I'm going to get married, settle down, and have kids. It was I will have a career and then eventually think about starting a family. So we had gone back and forth with that. So when I finally did get into the, to, to the Air Force, he followed me to the, the base I was stationed outside of Boston. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he started his, his career and his business, which was carpentry, out there. So he just transferred from one carpenter's union in Chicago to one in Boston. And, um, you know, we started our life together. And then I married him finally when I was 21. So, you know, we were engaged for two years that I was in the military, and then the last two years we were married. But, you know, the piece of the puzzle that I'm leaving out right now is the fact that um, he was an alcoholic and I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware just because of, again, naivete, immaturity, People drink when they're that age. That's normal. Um, but what I didn't realize is that the, he also, the drinking also came with a terrible temper, a lot of possessiveness, jealousy, and that sort of thing. So I started to become a little bit fearful of his temper. And even when I had married him, knowing that um, there were alcohol issues. So then I had to deal with that part of it. So here I am, this, this girl in the military. I get assigned to the transportation squadron. I had just gotten my license right before I went in the military, so then I go, come to find out with very little, probably about two months driver's experience, I was told I'm going to be learning how to operate buses and tractor trailers and wreckers and tow trucks and snow plows. And, you know, so that was even, um, I was intimidated by that. So, you know, there were a lot of, lot of uh, things that I needed to grow and mature and overcome 
in that process and dealing with um, a personal life that was very substandard. And, um, you know, I had issues later of fear. So I had somebody who became mentally abusive, um, which which escalated after a few years into um, uh, physical abuse. Amazing that you married a man that was very similar to the lifestyle you grew up in with your dad. Um, and you said there was some physical, what you called physical abuse with, you know, and, and I guess today they do call it abuse. Back then, I don't think they called it abuse. I think it was more... No, it's a sort of corporal punishment. You get spankings and, and that's it, that sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I did definitely attract a man in that sense. Um, but, you know, we do that, you know, and that's a whole other story about relationships and the type of people we attract and what we're looking for and that sort of thing. My father was not an alcoholic, never touched alcohol. He just grew up with a father who beat him, so he would beat his children for any and all infractions, you know, from swearing, from cursing, from taking change out of mom's pocketbook to breaking curfew to, you know, whatever it was, you weren't just told you're in trouble or punished. It was you're going to get a whipping. So that was just part of how how he was raised, and he did the same thing. So, um, yeah, with with my ex, it was um, it was rage it was it was the the, um the back and forth between um i love you're the greatest woman on the planet to um you know you think you're so smart going to college and being in the air force and you don't make as much money as i do you know and that kind of demeaning emotional trauma that i had gone through emotional right yeah for sure for sure a lot of people go through that we uh it's very interesting in coaching as you know uh in talking to folks that say, well, you know, I did this and I did that, and I, I wound up, you know, kind of aligning myself with a man in my life that was really kind of like my dad when I look at it. And it's true, we, we do that in life. And one of the interesting things I, I explain to, to, to clients is simply this. Parents are taught by parents who are taught by parents who are taught. And yes. we become a simple product of an environment. And we live what we learn and learn what we live. I'll say it the other way around. You learn what you live and then you live what you learn. Either way you want to look at it, it's actually a fact. And if people would remember that, they'll start to think, oh, well, wait a minute. Because a lot of people harbor a lot of really bad, hateful feelings for their parents, one or the other, or somebody that was adult in their life, whether it was a step-parent, whatever, for the way they were raised. When if they really start, now I'm not saying to, to, to excuse things that happen that shouldn't happen. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But right. there is a somewhere where it says, you know, this is all they knew. There was no book. And they say the Dr. Spock book used to be the thing. And somebody just told me the other day, oh, by the way, there is a book now. Well, I haven't read it. There is not a book on real parenting because every family merges. The mom and the dad come together. They come from two totally different places. They were taught by two totally different sets of parents. And now here That's they are right. trying to get together and create and do the best for their children as well. Parents of the past felt they were doing good by, by reprimanding us in that way. They actually felt they were protecting us from harm. As crazy as that might sound to some people, it really is the truth. That's what, kind of what they were taught back then, that, you know, yeah. if the rod, spoil the child, so to speak, you know. So, yeah, um, and, and so many people harbor that resentment towards a parent now for that, well, it's their fault. No, it's not their fault because here's a situation, Lisa, where you, and, and I have a similar in my life. I did something about it. It took me a while. It really took me a while. You know, I just, did the overcome, because I started my family young, too. You know, I was I was 18 years of age as well with my first child born, you know, looking down uh-huh. the face. Vietnam, you know, and we didn't know we were going someplace to, to not ever come back. We we didn't know, so we kind of lived that way, you know. And mom sure. and dad, they did the best they could and what they had, and it wasn't always Well, good. we share that. We share that, Jeff. Um, you know, and you, you're coming from, obviously coming from another generation, um, you realize that. And I, for some people, it takes them a little bit longer to get that. Because like you, I've coached individuals who hold on to that resentment or hold on to they should have done better. I don't forgive them, you know, and then they live with all of that pain. And for once, you know, when I work with my clients and I'm coaching them, 
I get them in a place where I get them into the shoes of their parents, get them into a place where they really understand um, what era they came from, what they were taught, what they learned, and that they were doing the best that they thought was right at the time based on their experiences. So um, I'm my father and I are the best of friends to this day. Yep. You know, and people look people look at that and they're like, really? After everything that you went through as a kid, you know, and all all that punishment and his his um, you know some of his strategies of punishment were were pretty severe. I mean, I watched my father my father burn my brother's fingers you know, on the flame of the stove for stealing, you know, drinking um, dishwashing liquid because of swearing, um, you know, having welts on our legs from um, electrical cords and going to school like that with shorts when we were in grammar school and people seeing these wounds. I mean, I don't know how DCFS wasn't called, you know, based on what the teachers had, had seen with us. So, yes, was it severe? You know, and at the time, did I want my father arrested? You know, children are confused. They love their, their father. They don't understand. But, you know, it was never even a thought that I need to report my dad to, to authorities. And then only later, and I'm talking later, is when my military days, when I would come home on leave, and my dad would pick me up from the airport because he was incredibly proud of me. He told me and he revealed, you know, I tried to get in the Air Force, but I didn't pass the test. It was really difficult. And he was so proud of me for getting in there. You know, here he was, a janitor for years, a school bus driver. He cleaned out air ducts. He had all these menial jobs to supplement the welfare. And then I found out through some digging because, um, you know, my father had a lot of a lot of pride and he didn't really like to share things that happened in his youth. Finally, I was able to discover, because I was in rapport with him, um, the severity of his abuse. And nobody, none of my siblings knew what my grandfather had done, all of the torture techniques um, that he did on his five children. So once I had that awareness, you know, it was like a whole, I thought, my God, it could have been a hell of a lot worse for us. So at least he amped it down, you know, a few levels in what he did with us. Was it right? I'm not advocating it in any way whatsoever. But now at least I have an understanding of it. That is important, and a lot of people don't, and they have a prejudge because they lived something they felt they shouldn't have, and they understand as they get into adolescence and they start to go out on their own that, yeah. and after picking up in school, no, I'm not supposed to be living that way. But again, here you go. There are circumstances beyond everybody's control because, again, we live what we learn and learn what we live, and your father did that, and he was actually right. Likely the best he possibly could under the circumstances of what he understood and what he knew. It's all he knew. And it doesn't mean that it's right. And people would look at it today and social services and everything go, no, 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 you're not talking about this right at all. The bottom line is it's still pervasive in our society today. Nothing has changed, fortunately. There are still families going through And it's just handled a little differently today. And I don't know that that's all right either. But then again, we're not here to talk about all of that. <laughs> right, right. And anyway, well, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad you shined a, a bit of a light on that, just for the understanding. Because, like you said, you don't know who's listening, you don't know what what path they have been on, and um, and that's part of the reason I expose that in my in my authentic, authenticity in Undercover Angel. I discuss it briefly, you know, and then the learnings that I had with that from physical abuse as a child, from domestic and emotional abuse um, from my former husband, my first husband and marrying young. So here's what I did. So here I was in the military, and, you know, I had this guy at home who was my fiancé, then my husband, and I actually went and visited a psychiatrist while I was in the Air Force because I didn't know what to do. I was on my own. My parents' family was all in Chicago. And I said, you know, I'm having a hard time at home. He's drinking too much, et cetera. I'm a little concerned. I'm concerned about his temper. You know, they said, has he hit you? At that point, he had not. So they said, Lisa, um, you know, are you depressed? I'm like, well, I'm not depressed because I was excelling in the military. I was already getting all kinds of accolades and awards and recognition. So a depressed person generally doesn't do that. So you're exhibiting other behaviors of um, losing weight and or gaining weight, you know, depression, um, not putting umph into your job, not caring about your employment. And that wasn't the case because I was really focused on doing a super job in the military. So they said, we can't do anything unless he's here with you. And if he decides he doesn't want to come, there's not much we can do as far as any kind of relationship um, therapy together. So that was it. So I have a record in the military file of going seeing a psychiatrist, discussing my marriage, and never returning again to get further um, uh, further help or guidance. I just figured I would quash it, kind of compartmentalize it, and put all my efforts into doing a great job in the military. So what did that give me? 
when I finished my four years, I was Airman of the Year from my base, nominated numerous times for Airman of the Quarter um, for the base, and then ultimately Airman of the Year Air Force-wide um, for all of the logistics squadrons in, in the entire military. So that effort, you know, funneling that, um, um, you know, targeting all of my energies into something good versus focusing on what was not so great in my life is what I did versus becoming destructive or joining him in his drinking, you know, with all the options that could have been there, I, I remained focused on that. So after I left the military and moved back to Chicago, he was able to resume his carpentry uh, career back in the union in Chicago. And then there I was, unemployed, but knowing now I'm armed with a GI Bill and Veterans Grant. So I immediately um, applied and got enrolled in school, but not full-time because I also needed to supplement family income. So I started looking for work. Finally got a job as a um, midnight shift security officer, so I worked private security. While I was going to school, I got a late-night shift and spent less and less time around my my husband. So that made it a little bit easier as well. So he worked his shift. I was on midnight. I was going to school. I was seeing him less. So therefore, you know, there was less emotional abuse. And when we did come together, it was kind of like, oh, you know, you kind of look forward to seeing each other type thing. So things had quelled for a little while during that period. But when I reached the point, when I, yes, and when I reached the point where I decided that um, I wanted to become a police officer, that's when things got a little bit rocky again. And that's when his drinking had increased. And, um, you know, then he started to have issue with that, that I was going to school was becoming educated, and now is going to be, you know, in a position of such authority and power that he felt he was going to lose me. So jealousy reared its ugly head once again, and um, emotional abuse had started again. So I got hired as a 911 dispatcher before I became a police officer because I found out when I did make the decision to become a cop that I missed the exam. They give it every two years, and I had missed it six months ago. So I had to wait a year and a half to become a police officer, and said, what's the smartest thing to do in the interim? For me, it was become a 911 dispatcher. I would get my feet wet. I would learn about police codes. I would know about how the police officers handle calls. I would know, you know, all of the 10, 10-4, 10 all of the, the signals and the verbiage that they use. So for me, it was a, a no-brainer. So while I was a 911 dispatcher working midnight shift, I still went to school, still having that drive of making something of myself. And uh, yeah, yeah, for for sure. And part of me also knew deep down, Jeff, that I would leave him, but I wanted to have the strength to leave him. It had gotten to a point where he said, if I ever left him, and I believed him, that he would kill himself or kill the next man in my life. He couldn't live without me, type thing. And I really was brainwashed into believing that he would do that because his temper was so volatile with destroying our house. And at that point, he had never touched me. So I would just watch the destruction and the rage of, um, you know, overturned furniture and tables and breaking glasses. And, you know, it was just a a tyranny, a tornado within our home that nobody was aware of. And, you know, I just kind of backed away and and ran out of the house, and I I was still extremely fearful. So I had a plan, and my plan was I would become a police officer and have the strength to leave him. So I endured yeah. You step away in your life, you have gone through circumstances on a personal, deep, emotional level that have launched you into the careers of your life. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. So I said cause and effect at the beginning of our conversation here today. We're either, you know, you're shaped, you're shaped by your environment or you're making the choices based on something that you truly want to do. You know, and I said before, did I want to compete in a pageant? No, it had never been on my path. Did I want to join the military? Absolutely not. (laughs) You know, furthest thing, did I have aspirations to be a police officer? Not in a million years, you know, and then to to just future uh, pace a little bit. Did I want to be on a SWAT team? (laughs) Did I want to work undercover narcs? Did I want to put myself in harm's way on a daily basis on some of the most elite teams that police have? No, you know, that was not part of any plan. (laughs) <laughs> Let me really get into the police department with you for a bit here, for a couple of minutes. Sure. I, I'm really impressed because, I mean, you went you went in as a female officer at right. a time where female officers really weren't that well accepted. Let's be serious. Yeah. I think they are to a greater degree now, but I'm sure there's still some issues. Let's be serious. There's always that yeah. situation. Yeah, 
Who's that? That that <laughs> what is the word? Jeez, <laughs> you know, because we're different. You know, the men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and when you right. Get, we're in a male macho environment, whether it's anything to do with authority, police probably, you know, uh, but you went from officer. Now, how long did it take before you really get to be, I mean, you got to be a detective. You went undercover. I want to talk about that. Sure. You did. No, so, yeah. Well, I kept, I kept my word, Jeff. Uh, when I said to myself and implanted in my own unconscious without letting on to anybody. I didn't tell family. I didn't tell friends, anybody nearest and dearest. I just knew. When I become a police officer and I have that badge and I'm, you know, trained that I will have the courage and strength to leave him and I will deal with the aftermath. I mean, after all, I would be packing heat, right? So in my opinion and my, my thought of um, having that self-esteem and that power, um, there was nothing that he could do. So I graduated from the police academy. I went into training right away with my field training officers and a month on the job, after one month on the job, is when I told him I wanted a divorce. So um, I took those steps. I took those steps, and I went ahead and did it. And all of a sudden, he, was a, he, he became a different man. I think he saw the strength that I had. I think he knew um, I was adamant that there was no turning back, and um, I was leaving. And he just it, he became a different man. He just... Uh, it supported my leaving. He um, wanted to remain friends with me as much as possible, and you know, you know, he was he obviously sad and disappointed. Disappointed he was losing me, but I think by that point I had become so educated and mature that he just realized that you know, there's there's nothing I could do to keep this woman. I I have lost her, and yeah. that's basically what it was. That was it. So now imagine here I was a single woman. I was 27 at the time and a brand-new rookie police officer, and that's all I had. So here I was in, in my new home, which was important to me. I bought my first home on my own, um, you know, based on my police finances, and I was out there literally on my own doing my thing, and that meant I could put 100% of my efforts into becoming the best cop that I could possibly become. So that's all I had. That's really all I had in my life. I took a break from school, and all my efforts were rotating shifts, and I learned along the way, and I adapted, adopted some of the um, some of the the best training from all the field training officers. And I said, you know what? I like this person's style. I like that police officer style. I like the way they handle their calls. I like this, and that's what helped mold me into being the police officer that I was. And I was very proud of the police officer I became. So with that, when there was an opportunity for an undercover role for me while I was still a rookie, um, it was an acid buy, LSD. And I was supposed undercover as a Hooters waitress, sit in a car with a bad guy who was the, the informant who was arrested, and we had success with that. And then that took a lot of courage, Jeff. That took, you know, I had a gun, oh. but it was under my it was under my seat. You know, you don't know the bad guy that's going to jump in the car and put a gun to the back of my head and tell me to drive. You know, and I'm a victim of a robbery. I just I didn't have a vest on because I couldn't. If I'm a Hooters waitress, I'm not wearing a vest. I'm wearing a Hooters outfit. So um, there were. It, it took some gumption, like you said earlier. And I think because I didn't know what I didn't know, um, later when I look at that, right now at the age that I am, I'm thinking, I was freaking insane. Are you kidding me? The risks that I took? You know, I would never have permitted, you know, later on I ended up with stepchildren. And I look at that, I'm like, I would never have permitted them to do something like that in a million years. You better damn well make sure that you have a vest on. You better damn well make sure you have a wire on. So yeah, I was promoted rather quickly, yes. That's like a Hooters waitress. <laughs> wow. So you, I mean, you really made a mark. I mean, how many years were you in the police department, Lisa? Well, it was a total of seven years, but I was undercover for three years, and I was also on SWAT for five years. So while yeah. I was on SWAT, it was simultaneous. I was a SWAT cop and an undercover narcotic detective um, overlapping each other, and I was working with easy 18-hour uh, shifts, you know, because I would get an arrest. We would serve a search warrant. Uh, we'd be at the office putting the, the reports together, my narcotic detective partner and I, you know, and, and we were nominated for Office of the Year several, several times and actually received Officer of the Year in 2002 together. So a lot of awards and accolades because um, I just felt that I could put everything into the job. That's all I had. It's really all I had, and uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed knowing that I was making a dent somehow in criminal activity in the Chicago area, and anytime anybody would ask, you know, I became like the uh, 
what is it, the Jan Brady of the police department. We have this undercover. You want to do it? Yes. We, do you want to pose as a 14-year-old girl to catch sexual predators? Yes, yes, yes. You know, I was the yes girl. Anything that they needed, you know, it was very unlikely that I would say no. And I used the act as this principle. You know, I told you earlier, I wanted to go to Hollywood and become an actress. Well, I got to be an actress for quite a few years working on the police department. So I, I definitely honed that skill of using act as this principle. And it kept me alive, frankly. Remind me of the girl in that movie with John Wayne, True Grit. Okay. That, that's, that's an oldie because it was all about that, that true grit. you got to have that stuff. You know, you've got to have that drive, that determination, and that stick to itiveness that you're going to do this and you're going to get through this. Now, I can only imagine. No, I can't. I'm going to, I'm going to take that remark back. I can't even imagine some of the feelings you must have had and, and the, the, the hair standing up on the back of your neck how many times while undercover in those circumstances, especially not only dealing with the drug dealers, dealing with the mafia as well. I mean, come on. You know, just anything in that situation where you knew these people had nothing to lose to pop you. Nothing. That's right. And everything yeah. to, because you, if they even suspected, and it's, and it's that way today, it, 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 certainly even to sometimes a greater degree, if they even slightly suspect, they waste. There's, there's no question about it because they're That's not right. You are. So I, and I, mean, I, beca- I came very close, Jeff. You know, in Undercover Angel, um, there's a chapter about that where I infiltrated mafia-type fencing organization, and I was literally called to the carpet you know, nose to nose where um, the mafia guy asked me straight on, are you a cop? Well, I was posing as an exotic dancer undercover. So I'm in a warehouse. I didn't have a wire. I didn't have a gun. Um, and there was nothing, you know, I could do in that moment. It was like, this could be the moment right now where I'm off. And, um, you know, fortunately I get to tell the story and I wasn't off. But, yes, <laughs> certainly there were many, many, many scenarios where I was undercover, um, where I put myself in, in harm's way. No question. And I'm blessed and I'm grateful that everything has turned out in my favor. There are plenty of police officers where it didn't. I became friends with um, uh, Joe Pistone, who is um, Donnie Brasco. Right. So the yeah. movie, yeah, so the movie Donnie Brasco, he actually endorsed my book, Undercover Angel. He says, oh, you, you got to appreciate the dedication and courage of somebody who repeatedly goes undercover you know, puts their life at risk. And that was a, a hell of an endorsement. And, you know, we're still friends to this day. When Undercover Angel came out in 2007, and he even said, Lisa, this has got to be a movie, just like Donnie Brasco. I mean, very, very, very flattering. So um, it, was, it was an amazing, amazing career, an amazing part of my life, you know. Wouldn't change it for, for the world, you know. And it shaped me in ways that, you know, I would never expect. Came with the military. Military taught me personal accountability, t- taught me, to not be a victim, uh, be, re- be responsible for all my actions and inactions, and police just reinforced all of those things as well. That's why I think I'm a fabulous coach because, you know, I have the capacity of knowing what it is, what's the definition of accountability, how do you keep somebody on track, how do you stop them from procrastination, which is the, the worst cardinal sin of, of anybody that deters them from achieving their goals. Procrastination is it. You know, what causes that? Because they're, not, they're either not attached enough to their outcome um, or they're not, on the, they're not on the exact mission that they want to. Because if you're on mission and on purpose, you will do whatever it takes to achieve that. I'll give you a quick example. I met this lady um, a few weeks ago in the Bahamas. I was at a, a mastermind event, and um, there was some wishy-washy going back and forth on whether or not um, she wanted to have coaching. And she's like, well, you know, it's the fee. It's, you know, my, my finance, et cetera, et cetera. So what I do is I try to find out how to get leverage on people. So I said, do you, are you married? Turns out she's not. Do you have children? Turns out she didn't. I said, um, is there somebody that you're really close to in your life? She goes, oh, gosh, her face just lit up. She says, my best friend. We've been best friends for 20 years. She's amazing. We love each other. We're so supportive. I don't know what I would ever do without her. I said, okay, so let's pretend that she was kidnapped and the ransom was X amount of dollars. How quickly can you get that money? And she's like, I would just just make a few phone calls and I would have it. I'm like, okay, that's what leverage is. That's what leverage is. So, you know, when I work with people and I try to find out, you know, do they have enough leverage on themselves, what they're willing to do, you know, in a crisis situation, and could they make it happen, they absolutely can. And that's why. You know, there's no reason right now that people shouldn't be doing what they love and being monetized for it. 
Absolutely. I figured out a way to do that, you know, throughout my, my years and my personal experiences. Why am I the reinvention expert? I coined that phrase. You know, I coined reinvention expert because I had reinvented myself successfully over and over and over again. And it went from, you know, something as silly as a beauty pageant to SWAT team to author, speaker, media personality, and the list goes on and on, producer. And, you know, so that's why I said even people right now, you know, I've, I've had people, uh, a lawyer who gave up her entire life to become a fashion designer. How different is that, right? Yeah. An auditor at an accounting company who hated what she did, but she studied to be that, but then decided she wanted to open a pet clothing company. How diverse is that? There are tons of people out there, Jeff, who are in jobs just to try and make the, their ends meet, and they're not doing what they, they love. They're not exploring their creativity. They're not exploring um, what it is. And they, they think, how can I ever make a living doing what I love? And that's where Lisa Lockwood walks in. I help people get that clarity on their mission. I open them up to embracing that change. Exactly right, Lisa. There's a man that actually started, as far as I'm concerned, the personal development industry. And I'm going back to 1952 and 1955, now I don't remember this. I just know it to be true. And his name was Earl Nightingale. And he did he yeah. did a crazy little record for some salespeople. He was a very poor, poor guy. He had barely had enough money to feed his family, but he was a good salesman. And he did a record. He had the opportunity to record this on a pictograph or some silly thing back then, The Strangest Secret. And it talks specifically about how many people, which is actually like eight or nine out of ten people by the age of 65 are broke. And only one or two really have achieved anything because there's only that one or two that really figured it out who they really are and who they really want to be so that they enjoyed their life and they were compensated justly for that. And that is such a beautiful thing to do. And that is wonderful about reinvention because in, in coaching specifically, Lisa, I, ha I have to give you accolades on that because people need it. People need that. And you take that same philosophy because here you went in and as an undercover, you had, uh, correct me, I think you had like up to 77 arrests, class X felonies. Uh, right. At one point, one point you seized like 90,000 bucks, uh, four automobiles. Oh, my gosh. You know, working with informants. I mean, if that isn't if that isn't taking yourself to the extreme, which is again one of those reasons, if not all the reasons, you are that great that great coach, that great reinvention expert, which is fantastic. So seven Thank years, you. seven years as a police yes. officer. <laughs> yeah. And you, why did you leave that? So here I was. I yes, I'll, I'll tell you exactly. I was faced with. Getting promoted to sergeant, and people are like, what do, you, well, what do you mean face with that? Isn't that an honor? Isn't that great? After working undercover, and nobody will really understand this, um, going back and having a, a, a sergeant role as an administrator, as a person who conducts roll calls, as a supervisor who looks at reports and, and ensures them for accuracy, um, the person that's out in the rove car making sure that police are doing their job, you know, as the overseer. Um, believe me, I love a role of leadership. But there was nothing exciting about any of that. SWAT team five years, undercover three years, to go into a job of disciplining wayward cops and running a roll call and that sort of thing, it wasn't part of my climb. And when you think about it, when I got into law enforcement, I got into law enforcement as a means to help me get away from my husband. So it's not like I thought, oh, I'm going to be the chief of police one day, that I wanted to soar that high. It was, let me get the best that I can out of this experience, and then I realized while being an undercover and detective and having the ability to act and getting those extra skills and being on SWAT and storming drug houses, all of that was super uber exciting, and I became an adrenaline addict, so to speak. I started doing running marathons. I started, you know, um, skydiving. Anything that was had to do with adrenaline, I was there. I NASCAR drives. I, you know, the list goes on and on. I have a bunch of them on my website. But that was a, a step backward for me. And the only other option that I had is if I didn't take the promotion to sergeant, I could have done a lateral trans transfer as a financial crime detective. And um, that was a huge yawn for me, handling check fraud and deceptive practices. Again, that's a lot of paperwork. It's about after the fact, not in the element um, where, where crime is. So I said, well, I, it's time to go. I finished my, my three years. And I said, 
now what? And I had a reckoning with myself. Every year I would set goals. And I set goals and I said, I will leave law enforcement this year. I don't know what the vehicle is because I still wasn't 100% sure what my mission was. I don't know what vehicle or what I'm going to do or what kind of job I'm going to have that's going to give me the same salary where a lot of people are right now. But I actually put it out there to, to, to the world and to the universe that I would leave law enforcement that year. And I had heard over the last few years by friends and colleagues, Lisa, all these stories that you share about your police experiences, you should write a book. So I would hear this over and over and over again until I finally believed, you know what, you're right. I should write a book, and I made the decision to do that. So I left law enforcement. I fell in love with another man. I ended up getting married, moving to Canada, leaving law enforcement, writing my book, and then a new reinvention was born. I became a stepmother of the three children. I was on the road speaking. Um, My former husband was a speaker and coach as well um, in real estate, and the two of us were on the road speaking, sharing our wisdom, coaching, and that sort of thing. And that was a fabulous long run, and that was my new reinvention into um, who I am today. And it still continues. It still continues, like I, I mentioned before, with producing and television projects and that sort of thing. So see, folks, you can do it too. Because listen to this story. I mean, and it is more. There's more that we don't even have time to talk about. What brings us to, I would like you to talk about coaching a little bit more. We've actually got about nine minutes left. I can't believe it. This hour goal, Lisa, we've had such fun. Uh, but you have you know, coaching, something that I really like. You call it the six keys. If we could take yeah. just a few go over those. And I know you've got something you'd like to talk to everybody about, about an offer. Uh, Absolutely. And anybody listening to LisaLockwood.com, you can even send me an email. Please Facebook me. I'm at Lisa Lockwood on Twitter. Um, Anything in this conversation or on this call that you want more clarity on, I'm happy to do that. And um, even before the very end end, I'm going to offer to everybody that's listening to your show today, LisaLockwood.biz. It's my very, very secret um, coaching site where I offer a service at the most affordable rates that nobody could say no to. Um, as an intro to get you more attached to what your mission and vision is, to get you back to joy faster by doing what you love. And I will have a 30-minute consultation with you at a price point that, like I said, is, is affordable to anybody right now. So I don't offer that to everybody, and um, believe me, it's far under um, what I normally do. So LisaLockwood.biz. But my web is LisaLockwood.com, Facebook LisaLockwood, Twitter at LisaLockwood. And then even with these six tips, you know, if you want to have them in a little bit more detail, please reach out to me, info at lisalockwood.com as well. So here they are, my six tips. I'm going to read through them first and then just give you a quick synopsis. One is to be willing to take uncalculated risks. Two, say yes before your brain says no. Three, act as if. We talked about that principle earlier today. Four, go against the current. Five, become thick-skinned. And six, live extreme. Take uncalculated risks. What does that look like? Well, look at the beauty pageant girl, the girl that was 18 years old with no credentials whatsoever who enters a state beauty pageant, um, completely uncalculated risk, and I I did it. And the rewards were there after. Like I said, it built my self-esteem. It allowed me to um, be able to take the next step, which is say yes before your brain says no, and that was joining the military. Listen, when I told my mother and went home that I'm joining the Air Force, she said, Lisa, do you realize that you may have to go to a war? Is education that important to you that you go to war and you would have to die for it? I said, yes. You know, and then I was in. I I entered the Air Force in 1989, 1990. We were in Desert Storm. So mom was right, but, you know, again, I'm blessed to be here. Acting as if principle number three. Acting as if you already have the skill until you make it. Acting as if you're doing that. You know, um, I I tell people all the time, think about actors, how they study for their roles, how they um, get into character so well. One of my favorites is Leonardo DiCaprio. Then you've got Meryl Streep. The list goes on. They are able to take on these roles that you so believe in their identity that that's who they are. So just hone that. Become that person. Walk into the room with your shoulders back and your head held high. Make people wonder who you are. Number four, go against the current. What does that look like? There were no women on the SWAT team on the south side of Chicago. I went and checked the general order. There was nothing in there that said a woman could not be on the team, but there were credentials that you had to do. You had to be on at least two years as a police officer, and you had to pass all of these physical and also all of the weaponry training. Well, I was a firearms instructor. I was a master um, firearms instructor, and 
after that, you know, I realized, let me find out what it takes to do the, the other part as far as the physicality. And I passed and I got on the team. So it was worth it to go against the current. Become thick-skinned. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is huge. Tell people over and over again. I've said it on numerous television shows. People are like, how do you become thick-skinned? Because I so care about people's opinion. I get really uh, derailed if somebody tells me I can't do it or I don't have belief in myself or et cetera. And I said, that's their, their garbage. That's their baggage they're imposing on you. Why would you allow that into you, into your life? Do you respect that person so much that their opinion is more sacred than your own? Become thick-skinned. People did not want me on that SWAT team. There were rumors about Lisa Lockwood on the department. Uh, People were trying to just, you know, put chinks in my armor, and I didn't permit it. I showed up happy and resilient every single day, even though a lot of times I had felt betrayed by some of my colleagues. There was not one point where I said, I'm not going to go for it because of the ugly rumors that had surfaced. And look at the result after that. I had five years on a a great team, and um, it was just an awesome, awesome experience. And the last is live extreme. Living extreme is different for everybody. It's your extreme that I care about. It's your next step. Wherever you are in your phase of your life, whatever step you need to take that's going to expand you into more of who you already are that's just been lying dormant for a little while, that's what it is. For me, the next step is, you know, going in a cage with, you know, with sharks in the ocean. I just, I love to push the envelope. I love to see, you know, what I can do to give me that adrenaline rush that's going to allow me to be on top of my game because I don't want to become complacent. I can't be a great coach if I'm not out there living extreme and doing the things that I'm coaching. So anything from high-flying trapeze, eating fire, walking on fire, the list goes on and on. But when I work with my client, I find out the most extreme things that they've done, and then I help them decide what the next thing is going to be to push them just a little bit further. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. One of your key lines that I love is use your obstacles to make an improvement in your life. Use those obstacles for your benefits. How fantastic is somebody wraps that around and gets it inside and really has that gut sheer determination to change their life, to change their mind, and to think these obstacles are teaching me the value of what I need to learn to become my authentic self. I love it. You're exactly right, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. And, well, that and that's it. Oh, so, so important. And and you know, and you've designed your life. It's like a it's like a fashion model of sorts. You did you did everything that you wanted to do, but you didn't do it the way you thought you were gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You thought you'd go to Hollywood and become a fashion model or something, but you still designed you still designed a life that most people just dream about because they just don't think they have enough stuff to do it. When, darn it, you do have the right stuff. Just have the belief. Just believe it. And if you don't believe it and you need help with it, you need to get a hold of a great coach. You need to get a hold of Lisa. You need to take an opportunity to take her up on this office she's going to speak to you all about in just there in a minute. And we've got about a two and a half minutes of showtime left, and she's going to have the last minute to talk about that. But, Lisa, this has been so, so fantastic to have you on. These are the things, and, folks, we just touched on bits and pieces. You've heard her story. Don't think you can't do it because you can yes. do it. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you so much. Was my path unique? Yes. Everybody's path is unique. You don't have to do the extremes that I've done in my life. Like I said, what's extreme for you is completely different for somebody else. And I re- that. I don't expect people to be at a level of extreme I am. And there are people that are way beyond me in extreme. Anthony Robbins talks about a guy that throws his parachute out of the plane and he dies after the parachute and puts it on before he lands. Okay? So I wouldn't do that, Jeff. Okay? Well, at least not tomorrow. But it's different for everybody and I completely respect everybody's path. That's why I, I want an opportunity, again, to get people attached to their vision, get them attached to their mission. That's the biggest thing. Lisa, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I know they know. They know deep down what it is, and it just hasn't surfaced, and a great coach is going to help them with that. So LisaLockwood.biz, as I said, LisaLockwood.com is my website. So if you go to LisaLockwood.biz, that's a special offering where, where um, I'm going to help you, and I'm going to be on the phone with you for 30 minutes and actually talk to you. I'm going to give you a questionnaire before the conversation, and I'm going to make sure that the, our time together is very valuable. So, again, LisaLockwood.biz, 
and think about right now, who are your mentors, who are your peers, why are you listening to Authentic Living Today with Jeff? You know, there's a reason that you're here today, and I encourage you to take action on that. Trust your gut. Know that you should be doing what you love, and you should be monetized for it. So thank you to the listeners, and thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And please get in touch with us. This is a fantastic, oh, I can't even say the word right, fantabulous offer that not too many people have done an opportunity at. Say you were on this show, you heard her on the show. Folks, we only get a few minutes, excuse me, a few seconds left. Wow, just this flown by, Lisa. Thank you so very, very much. I'm humbled. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll definitely be talking again soon. Thank you. Be well. Right. Goodbye, everybody, and thanks for listening to interviews with Authentic You, Authentic You Media.